Arthur Bell for the team of Nebraska. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance, the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron, what follows as he does every week on the program. Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note. I asked Dave Cameron about a piece written by Jeff Sullivan last week. Jeff Sullivan looked at those posts that we, uh, Fangraphs others, have tagged, and he was able to extract from this data um, about which teams Fangraphs authors have written the most and the least. Why, I asked Dave Cameron, have you so ignored Minnesota's twins, and what will you do about it? Dave Cameron attempts to survive that line of heated questioning. Nearly simultaneously, that Cameron and I discuss his organizational off-season rankings. The Milwaukee Brewers finished second in that regard, with Dave Cameron proclaiming somebody the fact that this is how one conducts a rebuild. How, I asked Cameron, does uh, Milwaukee's rebuild compared to uh, other recent rebuilds, for example, those conducted by the Houston Astros and the Chicago Cubs. What are the differences? What are the similarities? Etc. and etc. What else does this edition of Fangraphs Audio contain? A conspiracy theory, in this case one advanced by Cameron, regarding Fangraphs' own Chris Mitchell and the prospect projection system he's created known as Cato. It sounds like maybe Chris Mitchell was not honest with us and he didn't tell us that he was actually running the Brewers in his spare time. Stirring content. All of it. Not as stirring as uh, that which follows, however, which is a message from our sponsor. It is an honor for me to mention our sponsor, Draft and the Draft app. Are you familiar with FanDuel and DraftKings? Those are daily fantasy sports games. Draft is also a daily fantasy sports game, except unique. Unique in the fact that, A, one doesn't read about its myriad lawsuits every day in the news media, and also, B, that it is designed exclusively for mobile devices. If you have... A mobile device that features the iOS operating system, you can go to the App Store. And contrary-wise, if you have the Android operating system, you can go to Google Play or something like Google Play. You can download app. You can download it onto your phone. You can open it. You can register. And at that point, you can select either a friend or an Internet stranger, anyone in the draft universe. You can challenge to a stirring and heated and riveting daily fantasy sports game. Currently, every night, there are games available for basketball and hockey. Those are the two professional sports currently in their regular seasons. Here's how you do it. You find that opponent. You conduct a snake draft. Each select five players. The players you acquire accrue fantasy points. Whichever team, yours or your opponent's, produces the most fantasy points, that is the winner. You or your opponent. Perhaps one thing you've done is to wager American currency on it because this is legal, or at least mostly legal under the various rules agreed upon by the states, etc., etc. Regardless, it's a feature that definitely exists in the draft app. I've told you what it is. I've told you how to find it. And now let me tell you why I'm telling you this. It's because for reasons that are not entirely clear to me, but are totally obvious, to CEO of Fangraphs, David Appleman, this helps the podcast. So if you don't entirely despise Fangraphs Audio, then downloading this app will help in some form. Okay. That is the end of the sponsor's message, and it is now on to a conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. Some important business. No, the nanny has to leave. Yeah. Well, there's that too. 
Yeah. Well, I, mean, I guess watching my kid would be Born important. business, yeah. Making sure your child does not turn into a delinquent. Uh, that's going to happen. <laughs> Regardless. <clears throat> okay, let me ask you uh, – here's, here's where we'll start. Well, you and I, we both write for Fangrass.com. They, uh, Jeff Sullivan, another author for Fangrass.com, wrote last week a post in which he examined um, he examined which clubs we cover most and least. Well, yeah. well actually, he examined it, it, how much we cover all the clubs. Right. But he uh, he used the tags that we place on the post, which we have not been entirely diligent about right. tagging every post. Although I think we do a better job now that we have. A, dedicated editor maybe than we did <laughs> did you just pat yourself on the back no i'm just saying that i exist whereas before there was no one to do that job right so yeah, I, I, I think it's probably a decently representative sample though like the fact that not every article is tagged doesn't necessarily mean that like the missing tags are going to skew towards one team no i didn't think they would yeah um, well west people who live on the west coast are notoriously lazy uh that's true so maybe they're maybe if we have west coast writers they're they're less likely to tag their post, and maybe they tend to uh, just because of, uh, for geographic reasons, they're writing about the West Coast. Yeah, but then that wouldn't explain no one writing about the Twins ever. That's a good point. Maybe maybe uh, people who have written about the Twins are too uh, deferential. <laughs> uh, to They don't want to announce the fact that they're writing about the Twins. Because they're almost Canadian? So well, they're, like, they're yeah, nice. right, yeah, yeah. Mid, mid, Midwesterners in particular, Minnesotans, I think, right, are known for being... Uh, polite, perhaps to a fault. Yeah, I, my guess is like we probably had someone assigned to write about the twins, but then he had to watch the twins and he fell asleep. Yeah, and, well, so, so let's start. Let's start with the twins. Uh, it appear, it appears oh as man, though, all the all the readers are like twins talk. Let's go away. <laughs> no, well, yeah, they might be, but perhaps this is why we have not been writing this sort of twins post. Um, what does it? I suppose. I suppose. Well, in a general sense, what do you? What do you think are the factors that contribute most to? Um, to the choices, well, so you could talk from, you could speak from your own experience or uh, your experience also as an editor, uh, editor yep. and writer, I guess. So what, what, what are the factors which contribute to an, a Fangraphs author covering or not covering a team? So I think, like in my experience, there's no plan in place that says, you know, the Red Sox and Yankees and Dodgers and Mets, these are the teams that have the largest fan bases, so they're going to get the most. Uh, clicks, and so that's good for the site, so let's write about them more often. Like, we've never told anyone to do that. Um, it's not part of, you know, how we generate ideas, but I do think there's an inherent bias that we're not consciously choosing that plays off the fact that we respond in large part to what's happening in baseball. Teams with more money do more stuff than teams with less money. So if you're the Dodgers or the Yankees or whatever and you have a $300 million payroll, you're more likely to make an interesting signing or do, you know, uh, have a contract that's worth uh, analyzing or make some large trade. Uh, so I think the, just by default, the teams that spend more money do more stuff. And because we specialize in transaction analysis to a large degree, we're going to write about teams that do more stuff. So I think that's just part of kind of the nature of the beast. And then I think there's also the fact that we respond to what other people are talking about. And I don't think there's any question that there's a larger media sphere around Boston, New York, uh, Los Angeles, you know, those particular cities uh, than there is around Minnesota. And so if you have, you know, 15, 20 articles a day coming out about those teams and you have one article a week coming, up, uh, coming out about the Twins, there's less chance that 
someone's going to write something that we feel like we need to respond to or someone's going to make a post that's, um, you know, we feel is, you know, something that we can build off of and examine and look at ourselves. So I think that there's probably a systemic media, uh, you know, bias, I guess is a word you could use, but there's, there's just more coverage of those particular teams, which generates more coverage of the coverage. Right. And I would, I would also point out, right, that, uh, I, I mean, Oakland and Tampa Bay, I think uh, they, they're typically operating with the lowest, um, the lowest payrolls, and yeah. uh, they but but they both and they're you know so they're not necessarily making uh, high profile moves. Um, however, they both they both appear to have been written about m- more than average, yeah, uh, and more than average rate, and uh, and that's probably because uh, they both have uh, generally speaking analytically inclined front offices. I think that's true to an extent. I think it's also those two teams are more active. Uh, I think when we look at Oakland, kind of their model over the last few years has been like develop players, trade those players away, develop more players. Um, you know, so they had the Josh Donaldson trade a year ago, which obviously generated a lot of content. And I don't think that there's any question that if the Twins had traded Josh Donaldson, we'd have been writing about them. That wasn't necessarily that we were writing about Billy Bean's trade because Billy Bean made it. It's just that the A's did an interesting thing, and it was worth writing about. And um, I think the same thing with the Rays. They make a lot of trades, and they make a lot of moves. And so, um, you know, they're doing early career contract extensions that the Twins aren't doing. And I think uh, some of that probably is uh, resultant of the fact that we kind of have, like, philosophical agreements with those teams, and so we might be more inclined to write about them, and that could be an issue that we need to learn how to address so that we're not uh, spending too much time or disproportionately writing about Oakland and Tampa Bay. But I do think when you look at kind of like Minnesota's recent history, they haven't just they just haven't been that active. Like I like this winter, I'm not sure what we should have written about the Twins. Like you know, I think I did my um, grading the offseason post today, and you look at it like their twin their transactions. They signed Byung Ho Park, which uh, we wrote about and was kind of interesting, but it's kind of hard to write about international players. We don't have a lot of data for. Um, it's a, you know, it's a challenging topic. And then they traded Aaron Hicks for J.R. Murphy, and that was their winner. <laughs> okay, yeah, and and they and they do have, some, of course, some interesting prospects. Sure, um, who, who, you know, who could have a great effect on the season? Yeah, um, I, I would imagine as we get, you know, uh, further into Miguel Sano and Brian Buxton's career, we'll be writing with them pretty frequently. Yeah, 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 and uh, of course, unless they're team. terrible, in which case that would then we will then we will. Well, yeah, well, that would, I guess would would it also be exceptional if they were terrible? Would, it, would that be news? What's the what's the what's the uh, outcome that would receive the least attention? Because the twins have been pretty good at at finding that uh, particular road. Yeah, uh, uh, if they were maybe, just kind of mediocre. Yeah, if they just were like middle of the road. Like if, yeah. if Buxton doesn't become like a great player, but he just kind of turns into like an average player. Yeah, like he's like a good or something. Right. Yeah, he's like a good outfield defender with right. speed. It, it, like, you know, it turns into Jay Bruce or you know, like one of these guys who's like he has a career, but he's not a superstar. Mm-hmm. No one really runs straight about Jay Bruce all the time. Mm. And Sano, and actually Sano is probably the more likely to be almost precisely like Jay Bruce, right? Uh, yeah, I mean because of the contact issues. And yeah, the, right, and the power the, that goes along. Power, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, pro- uh, more raw power than Jay Bruce, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, probably more raw power than most people. <laughs> like I thought, it was all really, really hard. <laughs> oh, I was uh, I was reading some. I think it must have been Tony Blangino who wrote recently about. Uh, maybe maybe it was someone else. Oh, um, the relationship between. Uh, was it sl- slugging percentage or isolated power and uh, and exit velocity? Uh, uh, a pretty. I believe that was Craig Edwards, right? Oh, it could have been Craig Edwards too. All of, 
all producing great work for Fangraphs.com. But the point is, uh, yes, yeah, uh, fairly intuitive, and yet at the same time, uh, nice to have uh, illustrated before before one's eyes. Yeah. Hitting the ball hard is good. Yeah, it does. It turns out hitting the ball is really good. And it actually, uh, it seems to, um, it seems to be a pretty direct relationship. And those players, those players who exhibited strong exit velocity, but not great, uh, isolated power, I think they were more likely to see an increase in their isolated power, um, uh, in the second half, right? Uh, from the first half. Yeah, that sounds right. That's what I understood from, from yeah. reading, you right. It was Craig Edwards. I'm remembering, I'm remembering now, although Tony Blangino does work a lot with exit velocity. Yeah, he does. Yeah, it can't be ignored. It can't be ignored. Uh, so as to why the Twins are ignored, you think it's just a it's just a, a product of maybe a lack of movement on their part? I mean, I think it's a variety of factors. I, I think, like, one, we're probably predispo- predisposed to writing about teams which were more uh, philosophically aligned with, and the Twins historically have not been that. Uh, we're probably more uh, influenced to write about teams who do stuff, and the Twins haven't done a lot of stuff. Uh, and I think we're probably more inclined to write about teams in big markets, not necessarily because we're necessarily just trying to get clicks, but there's just more content about them to react to, and the Twins are not a big market team. So I think there's just a lot of strikes against the Twins that uh, cause us to, to not write about them as frequently as perhaps we should. And, and this isn't something that we're trying to defend and be like, yeah, this is the right, we've written about the Twins the right amount. Like, I think it's an interesting thing to look at and be like, ah, we maybe need to make a concerted effort to cover the Twins more. What do you think, um, what do you think has to happen for the Twins to find their way back to the top of the the Central? Um, well, they need better players. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that would be the, the obvious. Uh, I mean, I think, like, if you they probably need Sano and Bucks to turn into stars. Cause is I think that, is you, that what they're waiting for at this point, do you sense? Basically. I mean, it seems like they're just kind of biding their time to see what those two guys turn into. And if those two guys turn into, uh, you know, four to five win players, and then you look around the roster and you're like, okay, well, Brian Dozier's still pretty good and Trevor Pluth's not terrible, and, um, you know, we've got some pieces in place. Park might be okay, and, um, you know, Philip Hughes is fine. Like, maybe all of a sudden, if you have those guys, it's like, you know, ten and wins it, from those two, you're a contender. But if you're only getting, like, four or five wins from those guys, you just need to, you know, make some upgrades specifically probably in the rotation. Right, and then B- and Berrios is coming along too, we think. Yeah, with, I mean, pitching prospects are total lottery tickets. Like, I would never say, like, oh, you've got Jose Berrios, you're, you're set. I mean, you're like, we have no idea what he's going to be. We don't? No. No. I mean, he's, he's a pitcher. Like, you know, a couple of years ago, you could run down the list of, like, Archie Bradley and, you know, all these guys. Like, as soon as they get there, we're going to be amazing. And, like, you know, whatever, one out of ten. Hey, where's Archie it. Bradley these days? Yeah, it's like the Diamondback six starter, and he's not any good. Oh, Archie. Hey, where's Dylan Bundy these days? Yeah, in the bullpen for the for the for the Orioles because he's out of options. You wrote a. Uh, I remember you wrote at one point. You wrote a glowing review of uh, Dylan, like a high A start for Dylan Bundy. Is that uh, right? Low A. Yeah, so I went down to Canapolis. It was actually his second professional start, I think. Uh, and the stuff was crazy good. I mean, you can see, like, this This is why scouts get excited about guys like this. It's like mid-90s to high-90s with command and a really good off-speed pitch. And, uh, you know, it was very clear that there was upside there. But, you know, he's a pitching prospect. And, you know, three years later, he's uh, minimally valuable. Right. Whereas uh, two Stetson products, Jacob deGrom and Corey Kluber, yeah, two um, of the best pitchers in baseball. Find their way to the top. <laughs> Pitching, man. Uh, we have no idea. Yeah, okay. We have no idea. Very good. Uh, I don't know if there were any other notable names. Colorado uh, has also been down towards the bottom of this list. 
of uh, teams we've covered. And uh, I guess suppose to some degree it's a similar thing, right? A team that has been mediocre and seems to, uh, at some degree, have been content with that fact. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I just don't. I don't understand the Rockies. I just don't get them. I don't. I don't know what their plan is. I get that they're in a very challenging atmosphere, and like building a baseball team in, at altitude is hard. <laughs> and I don't know that I necessarily have the answer of what they should do, but I think I know that what they're doing isn't going to work. Right. You could tell. You could tell what they shouldn't do is. Yeah. yeah right. We could yeah. maybe be like, I don't. I don't have the solution, but I can identify that that's not it. Right. Well, this is one. Uh, you might be familiar with this. Uh, it's a sort of uh, theological form of theological discourse known as apophatic theology. Uh, where Actually, you, I've never heard the term. Oh, apophatic. A P O P H. It doesn't matter. Uh, apophatic theology is one where uh, uh, where everyone agrees that uh, God transcends human understanding. So, in order to explain what God is, you explain what He's not. All right. So you say like, that's not God. That's not God. That's not God. You kind of chisel away from the outside. Right. And so you you could, in terms of, you could perform a um, sort of an apophatic analysis of what the Rockies need to do. You know, there are some things they shouldn't do. Yeah, I, mean, wait, I don't know how to fix them, but I'm pretty sure that Chad Qualls and Jason Mott are not their golden ticket. Well, right. Uh, given where they are in the wind curve, it's it's not a great place to be on the wind curve. Yeah, and I think it's notable that a lot of teams on the wind curve weren't that interested in Chad Qualls and Jason Mott. <laughs> so, but but you can always you can defend. Wait, here's the one defense, or maybe there are others, but the one common defense for defending. Uh, um, for a poor club that is assigning relief pitchers is that ideally they can flip them at the deadline, right? Yeah, that is, that is one plan is to kind of sign relievers when you're rebuilding so that you can trade them a few months later. Yeah, right. Because at the at the deadline, no no sort of players value ha- is increased over the sort of off season value as as a relievers. Is that right? Or pitchers uh, in general, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, relief pitchers generally have the largest markup because uh, there's the most demand for them. Uh, like every contender looks at their bullpen and is like, "Ah, we could use another arm for October." <laughs> like, uh, but you know, like if you have other things, you say you have a first baseman or a third baseman or something, you don't necessarily know how many teams are going to need that specific thing uh, at the trade line. So you have a smaller demand, uh, and and um, so relief pitchers, I think, see a, a much larger premium, especially because going into the offseason or going into spring training, you can look at a bunch of your minor league arms and be like, well, we could maybe put this guy in the bullpen, give him 30 innings, see what he does. And teams are kind of willing to take that chance. Come July, no one's really willing to like take their top prospect and put them in the bullpen. Right. All right. So we we talked about the, the lack of coverage for the Twins and uh, made some mention of their the your um, review of their offseason. It was a it was a C grade, 20th overall. Uh, the Rockies, uh, less generous with the Rockies, it seems. Um, in fact, uh, <laughs> the least generous, D minus. Yeah. Well, uh, I just didn't like what they did. Sorry, Rockies. <laughs> and, uh, 30th overall, as you mentioned, Mott, Qualls. And then, uh, perhaps even, maybe, uh, more mysterious is the, the trade for Jake McGee. Yeah. Um, for, for Corey Dickerson, a player who is, Probably at least just as valuable as Jake McGee in terms of putting wins on the field, while also, uh, while also, uh, I think I'm um, under team control for a longer period of time. Yeah, right. Four years of Dickerson for two years of McGee. McGee costs more, and they had to go with the better prospect in order to make the swap. I mean, that's just one of the trades. Like, I just, you know, 
maybe if I can sit down with Jeff Bridich and be like, explain this to me, he could give me like a really compelling reason why McGee's value will go up and they'll get more for him at the trade deadline than they get, and then they go Dickerson and maybe we're really overrating Dickerson and there's some like fundamental flaw in his game. But this is a, this just is a kind of deal that like I don't, it's the kind of trade that you would look at and be like, oh, okay, you're a contender. You're trying to push in now. You had a big hole in the bullpen. You're trading long term for short term. But the Rockies aren't that. They're trading long term for short term when their short term's not any good. <laughs> it, yeah, I sometimes ask you to give a team the benefit of the doubt. If you did give them the benefit of the doubt, what would it be? Uh, that they know that Corey Dickerson is more injured than we believe. I mean, he's a guy who struggled with injuries throughout his career. He had plantar fasciitis last year. Um, it's possible that maybe he's just a DH and he just can't play the field reasonably well because of health and they don't have the DH in the National League. Um, so I think like if I was going to give them the benefit, out, the benefit of the doubt, it would be related to Jake, to Corey Dickerson's medicals. But then they traded for a guy with like really bad medicals who the Rays were trying to trade all winter. Right. So. Who knows? <laughs> okay. Uh, a team uh, that you you don't feel compelled to give the benefit of the doubt already because you um, you don't you're not thrust in that position because you just like what they did. That's the Milwaukee Brewers. I, I love the Brewers offseason. Yeah. Right. And the Milwaukee Brewers. This was a this is another team that we've covered uh, to a lesser extent. I believe also uh, correct me if I'm wrong. The Milwaukee Brewers have the smallest probably the smallest market share of any team. Does that sound right? Close to mm-hmm. it. Yeah, sure. They're probably in the running, at yeah. least. Yeah. Um, but the Brewers uh, had a, had a, uh, as you say, a fantastic offseason, ranked second overall in a straight A you've given them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that uh, – was it last <laughs> – Liberty I agrees. She's uh, a big fan. I, I, I don't know if it was this uh, last week or not, but, but looking, at, looking at just the players they've acquired this offseason, yeah. it's, it's, like uh, it's like a very strong – Junior varsity squad that they've signed. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like like uh, maybe Chris Mitchell was not uh, honest with us, and he didn't tell us that he was actually running the Brewers in his spare time, as he just acquired like all these players that uh, Cato really likes, and his uh, you know minor league projection system thinks highly of, and and I think they did a really good job of kind of stocking up on these you know probably not great players, but with interesting potential. Um, the Reimer Lirianos and the, you know, uh, Ramon Floreses of the world and, um, getting like seven or eight of those kinds of guys, uh, and kind of stocking the roster with, you know, guys with enough intrigue and say, look, we're not going to be good this year, but maybe in not being good, we're going to find a Ben Zobrist or we're going to find a couple of guys who could be core players for us for the next couple of years. If they can actually do that, they could, you know, end up stealing 40 or $50 million in value just by throwing a whole bunch of stuff at the wall. Right. And, and it's interesting because they actually, because I actually don't, I think that Reimer Liriano, I forget how well acquitted he was by Kido. I feel like he was not the most of, um, no, but, yeah, Cato didn't love him. Right, because of the strikeouts. Right, because of the strikeouts. But you, you take, uh, I mean, Ramon Flores, uh, I think probably Garen Cicchini, right. um, who seemed to have hit a wall last year at AAA, but who's got a strong minor league record. And then Colin Walsh, maybe, yeah. uh, who was had a very interesting season last year, I think, as a second, third baseman for AA Midland, if that's yeah. still Oakland's um, – uh, Texas League affiliate or something like this. Um, and then, right, you have those sorts of players who are not necessarily, uh, um, uh, let's see, con- uh, bursting with tools, uh, yeah. but have sort of interesting skill sets that may not be as beloved by scouts. And then you have, uh, I think Keon Broxton is probably 
sort of player who's got tools, and then and then as you mentioned, Reimer Liriano was another one of, one of those sorts who yeah uh, Chase Anderson is not necessarily a prospect anymore, but probably still fits into this group as like a you know guy that's never really been a big fan uh, from a scouting perspective, but has produced pretty interesting results at the big league level. Right, right, and and that's usually um, he he of course belongs to a class of pitcher we've discussed in past, which is the strong changeup yeah. pitcher. Right, yeah, uh, yeah, I think that there's a decent chance that he could be Kyle Hendricks, which isn't an ace. I mean, you're never going to be like, oh man, I've got Kyle Hendricks as my number one starter. We're going to the World Series, but if you can get Kyle Hendricks for nothing, you should do it. Right, um, yeah, and and they really, I mean, they grabbed a lot of these guys, and then. Um, of course, they had, they had uh, picked up Domingo Santana and right. Brett Phillips at the trade yeah. deadline last year right. in exchange for Carlos Gomez. And Josh Hader, I think, uh, came over in the right, uh, yeah. in the deal with Baltimore uh, for uh, Gerardo Parra, I think. Was, Josh uh, Hader had been an Astros prospect at one point. Actually, right. before that, he had been a Baltimore prospect. Okay. Well, um, he, he's he's in the someone order, came in, over in, for Parra. Yeah, right. He's in the Brewer system now. Oh, they got uh, Davies, right? Davies came. Oh, right. Zach Davies, who's Zach another Davies. another well, changeup heavy guy. Exactly, another pitcher who's interesting. So they they've just like over the last six to eight months been stockpiling interesting talents, and you know most of them are going to fail, and people are going to look back and be like, I can't believe you were high on Zach Davies. That guy sucks, and maybe he will. But out of this like fifteen guys or whatever, they're going to find two or three core pieces who's going to be like the next Doug Fister or someone like that and all of a sudden they're going to be like hey look you know we have these two or three good solid players uh we got Ethan Diaz and that uh the Segura deal you know we got uh Nottingham and the Chris Davis deal now our farm system's in pretty good shape we're gonna have some top picks we're gonna have some money to spend it's not so crazy to think that the Brewers could actually be on the way to winning again in a couple of years how do you think this compares to Houston's rebuild so you know maybe like Houston to two three years ago when they were picking up Robbie Grossman and L.J. Hose. Yeah, I mean, so David Stearns came from Houston, so there's obviously certainly similar DNA in what they're doing. I do think right now that they haven't torn it down nearly the same way that Lunau tore down the Astros. I mean, those Astros teams were really pitiful. Uh, the Brewers still have Ryan Braun, they still have Jonathan Lucroy, they still have Will Smith, they still have Matt Garza. Like, uh, there's still like some pretty big name veteran guys on this roster. Uh, they're not going to be a good team this year, but I don't think they're going to be a total embarrassment unless, like, you know, they trade all these guys in spring training or something. Then they could really be terrible. But I think they're still, uh, you know, probably a few moves away uh, from being really atrocious in, in 2016. And I think that the kind of the higher floor guys they've gotten will probably keep them from losing 105, 110 games. I think realistically they're not going to bottom out the same way the Astros did. Yeah, do, yeah I was going to say, do you think this is the bottom right now for the Brewers? And or uh, and then beyond that, do you think that it would behoove them to, uh, to trade, uh, especially Luke Roy and then maybe also Braun? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think this is probably like 2017 might be worse for a uh, overall record perspective if they end up keeping Luke Roy and Braun until like say the trade deadline or some point during the season because they're going to get half a year of performance from those guys if they do that. And so, you know, Luke Roy is still one of the better catchers in baseball and Braun can still be a productive player and, um, you know, they haven't stripped mine their rotation yet. So I think, you know, 2017, you know, maybe this year they win 71 games or 69 games or something. Maybe next year they win 65. Like, they could go down a little bit. But I think they're pretty close to the bottom, and their their arrow is pointing up. Okay. I want to ask you about the Cubs offseason first, but let's talk about in the – we've here, we're looking at uh, the rebuild, how to perform a rebuild. Uh, you have the Brewers as, as a pretty good example. The Astros were before that. How did how did the Cubs get to where they are? How how is it similar or different similar to or different from uh, what the Astros and uh, the Brewers did and are doing? No, I think it's a similar idea. I mean, the 
Cubs certainly rebuilt and kind of stripped their franchise down and said, we're going to get rid of a lot of veterans and we're going to take flyers on guys. And like Jake Arrieta is like one of the prime examples of when you take a flyer on some guy with like kind of interesting upside, but you know, not established major league performance, this is what you can find. And Jake Arrieta uh, turned into one of the best pitchers in baseball. It's not that every pitcher you kind of throw at the wall is going to do that, but you know, you only need a five or 10% success rate to justify making these kinds of moves. So I think when we look at kind of what they did over the last couple of years, um, you know, they certainly took some some chances on some guys, and they've uh, were able to kind of find some pieces that were like, okay, this is a a guy we can you know turn into something. And Anthony Rizzo, you know, like that wasn't necessarily um, throwing spaghetti at the wall, but this was a you know prospect with some question marks who had done very poorly in his major league debut and who maybe struck out too much and had some real questions about how well he was going to hit to play first base. And now Anthony Rizzo is one of the 10 or 15 best players in baseball. And uh, so I think, Yeah, sorry, you mentioned Arietta. I, I also think uh, Chris Coughlin uh, is another sort of player who's kind of uh, – who they gave an opportunity after having like almost disappeared in Miami. Yeah, I mean, he's more like a, a role player type. I don't think they've ever really given him like a full time job. Uh, but he's like a, you know, a nice solid bench piece that you don't mind having around, uh, as a depth, depth guy. I mean, he's not necessarily like a Ben Zobrist necessarily, but, um, you know, he's a, a, the kind of guy that you say, okay, this is basically out of baseball. We can afford to just see if he can find his rookie of the year, uh, talent again. And he turned into like a pretty solid, useful piece. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's the sort of, that's, that's what a rebuilding team should be doing is to, is to picking up uh, what scraps from other teams and seeing if there's anything left. Yeah, especially on the pitching side. I mean, you know, the Cubs are still doing this. Like they did this with Trevor Cahill. Uh, they turned into a good reliever. It was basically his career was dead and buried in Arizona. Um, they did this with the uh, with the left-hander from Cincinnati, Travis Wood. Um, oh, you right, know, right. it's just a whole bunch of guys that you know Pedro Strope, who isn't necessarily like dead and buried, but he's turned into a much better reliever. Uh, they got him with Arietta. So guys like that, where you're really just like. Finding interesting arms, and you've built a pretty good bullpen out of it. Right, and uh, and is that the sort of thing where you feel like when you look at back to to invoke the Rockies again, that's the sort of strategy you would expect the Rockies to be embracing, but just for some reason they they appear to be content with uh, with their lot in life. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a better use of the Rockies' time to say we're not contending in 2016. Let's go try and find the next Adam Adovino or the next Andrew Miller or someone like that, than it is to say, let's try and squeeze the last ounce of juice out of Chad Qualls' career. Like, if you only have so many innings to go around, you should be using them on guys who you could turn into assets and turn into long-term valuable pieces, and there's just basically no way to do that with Chad Qualls. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the Cubs offseason briefly. You rank this as the – well, it's tied with the Brewers in terms of an overall grade, uh, but first overall – um, I guess that they've reached a point, right, where uh, we could say we could invoke the term wind curve again, where they're looking to add uh, – it behooved them to add uh, big-time pieces, which they did, both with Hayward and Zobrist. Yeah, I mean, certainly they were at the point where it made – it made sense for them to spend money this winter. Spending money is not always a good idea. Uh, free agents don't have a great track record. But there reaches a point at which you say, look, you know, we're going to get the most short-term benefit we can by just maximizing our short-term upside, essentially. And so we know that, like, you know, John Lackey is not going to be a great player for long-term, and maybe Ben Zobrist at four years isn't going to age that well, and the end of that contract is not going to be great. But we want to make our 
2016 team as good as possible in order to try and win the World Series. Uh, the fact that they were able to get Zobrist at a price that I still think is a discount and Lackey at a discount, and Hayward was the cheapest of the five-win free agents that was available this winter while also being the youngest, and then they made the really smart Adam Warren trade, uh, I, I look at it and say, for a team in win-now in win now position, they did the most with what they had. Okay. They still they still do have, and you, you note this, they still have a projected outfield of Schwarber, Hayward, and Solaire from left to right. Yeah, it's and not great. Yeah, right. It's not an ideal outfield arrangement. What do, what do you think, like, at the end of the 2016 season or maybe 2017 season, what do you think that outfield will look like then? So I think one of Schwarber or Solaire will not be around. My guess is uh, it's going to be Schwarber. If I had to pick one, I think he's probably a first baseman slash DH and, and belongs on a team that either is in the American League and has a DH or has an opening at first base, which isn't the Cubs. Um, I just don't think he's an outfielder long-term, and he's probably not a catcher long-term either. So my guess is uh, you know, the Schwarber-Solaire um, experiments, one of the two ends up being trade bait, and I, if I had to guess, I would probably go 60-40 on Schwarber right now. Um, so I wouldn't be too shocked if at some point this summer, if, like, if Schwarber is just really a disaster in the outfield, you know, not necessarily Hanley Ramirez bad, but maybe Adam Dunn bad or something, that the Cubs just realize, like, this isn't the best way for us to try and win this year. They make some kind of trade for a center fielder, or maybe Javier Baez turns into a good center fielder. I mean, you know, they have Alberto Morales, who's not that far away. They have some internal options that they could rearrange, but I wouldn't be shocked if they went out and made a trade for a center fielder, maybe a rental, um, and said, okay, we're going to move Hayward back to right, move Solaire to left, uh, and that's our new outfield. Or, you know, they could stick Hayward and left if they wanted to. But I think I wouldn't be surprised if at some point Hayward moved back to a corner and uh, Schwarber went away in some kind of uh, trade for either pitching or a center fielder or both. Uh, you're, you're sort of mentioning here a possible musical chairs scenario in the outfield for the Cubs. The uh, the Mets finished third on your list uh, with a grade of A minus, and they seem to demonstrate the Mets a, a sort of uh, a laudable de- degree of flexibility this off season. Um, after seeming to have zero interest in resigning Yoenis Cespedes, uh, he he uh, was miraculously available for what three seventy five. Yeah. Yeah. With, uh, when are his opt outs? He has, well, you can only have so many opt outs in this three year contract. He's, he's got one, and it's after the first year. Right. And, uh, against, uh, it's part of a much weaker free agent class, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so we expect, it's very possible it will turn into a one year deal for you on a suspect. Yeah. That's probably the most likely outcome. Okay. Right. But, uh, but that was, was that not a, a, a great deal of flexibility they showed after seeming to have no interest in him to begin the off season? Yeah, I think uh, if you look at kind of what their stated plan was, it's hard to tell whether they were um, whether they read the market accurately and realized that no one was going to give Cespedes kind of the what six and one hundred and twenty million or seven one forty or whatever they were seeking, and they said, you know, hey, we just we're going to sit around and and expect his price to drop, and eventually we're going to get a bargain. I don't think that's what they did. I think especially the Alejandro Daza signing suggests that maybe they. Uh, they just kind of got lucky, and they but they were smart enough to at least keep their options open. I think we can contrast that to like maybe the Orioles with Chris Davis, where they just said, "Well, we'll just kind of bid against ourselves, even though there's no obvious uh, other team here to snatch this guy away from us." Um, but they, you know, they were willing to say, "There's a price at which this makes sense for us, even though we don't think you're a great center fielder, even though we have alternatives in place and we don't need you. At some point, your price is going to come down to where it just is too too cheap to pass up for the quality of player that you are." 
Um, so kudos to them for being flexible and not just saying, look, we've moved on, we have Deaza, we don't want you anymore. Uh, now they have to figure out what to do with Deaza. <laughs> but I think uh, to Sandy Alderson's credit, they were willing to swoop in when it became pretty clear that there was just a, a bargain to be had if they wanted it. Okay, I want to uh, set aside, uh, I guess for good, this matter of the uh, grade, of grading the offseason. Um, uh, and I want to just ask one question is, who is Yaziel Sierra? Or no, not Yaziel. Who's Yaziel? You say it again? Yaziel. Or Yaziel, maybe? Yeah, I, I, I would probably say Yaziel, but why period Sierra? Who is he, and how did he get uh, $30 million from the Dodgers? He's a Cuban pitcher okay. who throws hard and had terrible results in Cuba uh, as a reliever. <laughs> and now the Dodgers are going to stick him in the minors and hope he's a good starter, which – I would say that the track record of taking a guy who's bad internationally out of the bullpen and hoping he's a good starter against tougher competition is probably not great. Um, but they're certainly betting on stuff, and this is kind of like a player development bet, most likely, is they're saying, look, you know, we found a guy with a big arm, maybe we can teach him how to pitch, or we can fix whatever was wrong with him, um, and we think that the stuff should translate more than the performance. Whether they can do it or not, who knows? I'm not even sure they know. Uh, but they have so much money, and they're, the international uh, spending limits don't apply to Sierra, so he can you know, essentially sign without any kind of penalty. So giving him $30 million is a lottery ticket. If he turns into a good pitcher, well, they got a good pitcher for a fraction of the price of what good American pitchers cost. And if they didn't get a good pitcher, well, who cares? $30 million to them is nothing. Right. You mentioned his performance in the, what, the Syria Nacional. This is usually a league in which... Uh, Pitchers are, you know, rarely topping like seven or eight strikeouts per nine innings. And I would think that not to be among the leaders in that would not bode well for a, uh, a pitcher's performances, uh, in the States. Yeah. I, I mean, if you don't, if you don't pitch well and you don't miss bats, uh, it does suggest that, you know, maybe your stuff just doesn't play as well as it, it looks like. And, right. But, you know, at the same time, I think we know a lot less about him than they do. So this is the kind of situation where I think you're like, only the Dodgers could afford to do this. This is a uh, a flaw in the economic model of Major League Baseball. It is basically given the Dodgers a free opportunity to take shots like this. Um, but, you know, it, it, even if there's only a 5 or 10% chance it pans out and he turns into a really good pitcher, you know, $30 million for six years of a really good pitcher pays for a lot of busts. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the Dodgers have done a lot uh, for helping – um, I guess athletic Cuban men in their twenties. In terms yeah. of in terms of reaching uh, financial security. Yeah, I think I read the other day, maybe it was in Ben Badler's column, or uh, anyway, I can't remember exactly where I read it. But there's something like 300 Cubans who have escaped the island recently, who are hanging out in the Dominican Republic waiting to sign. 300. It's like half of the roster spots in Major League Baseball. What? They're just are they all hanging out in the same place? Like there's, I mean, Badler's story last week uh, was when he visited a field that someone built literally in the middle of nowhere that you had to like drive off road to get to, and then all of a sudden, like in the middle of this clearing, is this like really nice baseball stadium that illegal Cubans train at while they're waiting to get clearance. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, there's basically like this weird human smuggling. So it's like Cuban uh, field of dreams, is that basically is kind of yeah, here? right? They're just like walking out of the cornfields and being like, play catch with me. <laughs> Shoeless Jose. Okay, that's, I'll give you credit for that one. That's good. But that's also – it's also weird. It's also uh, when one becomes acutely aware of the effect of uh, what, uh, geo, geopolitics on yeah. uh, the, the lives of um, – well, anybody, I guess, but in this particular case, athletes. 
I, I will say I'm reticent to say that like uh, human trafficking is the new market inefficiency, but unfortunately that's kind of what baseball has set it up as. I get uh, what well, you could make an argument if you're being trafficked in its ultimate, or it could ultimately be to your to your own financial benefit. Is that still trafficking? It, I think so. I mean, I think the idea of uh, of you know what these guys go through. Even if they get rich at the end, and a lot of times, you know, they have to pay crazy amounts of money in order to get off the island. So they don't get nearly as rich as we would think based on the contracts they sign. But a lot of times their families get held hostage. They're targets for a long time of extortion. Uh, I think that these are, this is not a great scenario, even for the guys who sign big contracts. All right. right. Uh, Noted. Well, Cameron, uh, with that, with that distressing note, you you have uh, fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. Hooray. I have one question for you. Okay, so I've not fulfilled my obligation. No, you're not. You no. Lied. Well, no, this is a, this is extracurricular. I, I was thinking about this. Uh, my wife sometimes says when she's looking at our dog, uh-huh. she says uh, she says to the dog, or she'll say to me, she said the dog is so cute. I want to I want to nibble her or eat her. Mm-hmm. And this is not unique. I think I've heard other people say this when they come across something cute. Now, has anyone ever said this about your child? She's so I'm so you're so cute. I want to eat you. No, I don't think I've heard that, and I would probably report them to the cannibalism police if they did. <laughs> the special cannibalism yeah, there's a ta- task force. Yeah. yeah, but what do you do? You understand what that desire might come from? I understand you're not a behavioral psychologist. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't like to me. That's a pretty weird statement. Like, I can't even imagine telling someone I wanted to eat their child. I don't think anyone is thinking you're going to do. It. I think it's with people who have uh, feelings. Oh yeah. Well, I don't have those, so I can't really relate to people who have those. No, I know, but I've wondered I've if you've studied if you've the emotional <laughs> side of things. <laughs> if you've studied people with feelings, at least I think. Yeah, no, my code hasn't been written for that yet. <laughs> All right, finally, now you have fulfilled your obligation. But if anyone does have any information as to that 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 uh, impulse, why do humans want to eat cute things? Not really, Ethan, but there's an urge to nibble them for some reason. I don't know what it is precisely. That's bizarre. I get a hairball. It's not fun. No, it's not fun. Okay. Uh, Thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. 